Our scripture today is from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you and that through believing you may have his his life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. What does a Peachtree Christian Church member look like? That's a question that visitors often ask me. What do we want a Peachtree Christian Church member to look like after having gone through worship with us, study and training, fellowship opportunities, service projects, mission trips? Well, that's the question that the staff and I ask ourselves as we go about our work and our planning. Underlying both questions is another more basic one that is this. What's going on here at the church? I had to ask that question when I moved here just a little over three years ago and came on staff to be with you. I had figured out really quickly I had to learn a whole new grammar. And that's not simply because I moved from the Midwest to the South it's not just about learning the word y'all or how to say Coca-Cola, rather inappropriately, I might add. No, I had to learn things like where you stand in worship is not a stage. That's not what we call it. It's called a chancel. It's a word that has more theological gravitas for it. It means that it's never a place of performance, but it's a place of receiving grace. I had to be reminded, even though I don't think I made this blunder too much, that the space where we worship was not to be called an auditorium, but it was a sanctuary because it was solely devoted to God and not for other purposes. That's right. I had to learn and make certain of acquiring a new grammar. It is ubiquitously true that when you come into a new community, there are a lot of confusing things to learn, a lot of hurdles to step over, a lot of new insights to attain. That comes with the new grammar, but sometimes it's more than that. It's learning traditions that become new for you but are old for others. It's learning new policies and people and people's pet peeves and the problems and the strengths of the given community. 
Over the course of the past few weeks, we have received Reverend Nick Chambers and Caitlin, his wife, and we, we walked them through Holy Week constantly saying to them, well, this is what we do here. This is what it's like on Ash Wednesday, or uh, pardon me, on Wednesday of Holy Week and on Maundy Thursday and so on. Finally, this week when he came into the office, I sat him down in Reverend Wortman's office and I opened up this cabinet with a huge whiteboard and I began to try to help him understand just a little more about our polity. Have you ever really tried to explain that to someone? I took a marker and I wrote God on top and then below it congregation and then below that I, I put the words like board, executive committee, trustees, and so on, trying to help just get a handle for Nick on, on this community that he has just thrown himself into. I imagine as he's sitting there looking at that and greeting you and, and learning this new place, he had to ask himself a time or two, What's going on here? That's a very specific example of a general truth of the Christian faith. You see, in encountering Christ, when we encounter Christ, we are often left in such a wash of new experiences. For example, grace, forgiveness, mercy. Sometimes we have a mission that's clear, or we even have a tendency toward doubt. All of these new things come in in such a complex way that we're all often compelled at one time or another to, to think about our encounter with Christ and simply say, what just happened? What's going on here? The Bible is packed, chock full with people's experiences with God. The New Testament in particular is filled with people's shock and awe over a particular kind of experience with God that we simply call Christ's resurrection. Now, in most cases, the fact of the re resurrected Christ boggles the imagination, but it also fulfills a certain hope that the God of all creation can and did indeed enter into our created lives and therefore is able to effectively wipe out the profundity of the thing that scares us the most, which is death. The gospel writers, if you read them closely, and even the New Testament writers look at this experience of God called resurrection and say further that it initiates and justifies even a mission for those who glimpse Christ anew. It's a lot of feelings going on when we experience Christ in the resurrection. There's a lot of experiences. Consider St. John's account, for it reports all the aforementioned feelings and experiences for the earliest people who got to see Jesus alive from the tomb, for the earliest people who had an experience in resurrection that left them forever changed. And then in that account, it begins this way. Peace be with you. These are Jesus' words. I suppose that Jesus was wise enough to know that showing up in front of some students of his own self and his own time teaching after having been killed, well, that might create some confusion, perhaps fear, maybe some angst. Peace be with you, he says again. Now, the majority of the disciples were present, and I think as Jesus stands before them declaring peace, their collective blood pressure still rises and peaks. They sit quietly. They don't know exactly what to say, although they are certainly happy. After they look at his wounds, I suppose this is some sort of proof that he's no imposter. 
they rejoiced a little more. Perhaps a little nervous happiness happens inside of them. I remember watching Field of Dreams with my father when I was little. In that movie, Ray Kinsella is a farmer who has a vision to put a grand baseball field in the middle of his corn, tear down a lot of his corn to do so. And players started coming out of the cornfield. They were ghosts or spirits or what? We don't know. But they are players from the olden days like Shoeless Joe Jackson. Along the way, he, he acquires a friend named Mr. Man who's an author who used to write about the old game back in his younger, more idealistic days. Toward the end of the film, Shoeless Joe looks to Mr. Man and says, would you like to go with us? You see, every night at the end of play, the, the players went out to the cornfield and disappeared going, well, God knows where. And Ray's upset because he wants to go. He wants to see. He has stepped out in faith time and again for these visions, and he wants to know what it's all for. But it wasn't his time. So Mr. Man says, Ray, I'll write about it. He says goodbye, walks across the infield, through the outfield, and to the edge of the corn. And other players are walking by, disappearing into it. He begins to stick his hand out just a little bit, touch a blade of grass, and he starts laughing quite robustly. It's James Earl Jones playing the character, so you can imagine. I looked over at my dad, and I said, why on earth is he laughing? This is scary. Doesn't he know he's about to die? And my dad said, you know, son, there are some experiences in life that are so out of the ordinary that it makes your body do funny things, like laugh when you're nervous. I imagine the disciples maybe even having a nervous laughter at the presence of their risen teacher who simply says to them, peace be with you. Just then, Jesus moves to each disciple, letting them know, I have a mission for you. I have a mission for you all. And then he moves one by one, breathing on them. <sighs> have you ever been breathed on by somebody else? It's unnerving. We worry about germs, personal space, hula hoop, everybody, hula hoop. We also worry that halitosis might enter the picture. But the disciples, they don't recoil from Jesus in disgust. They don't move away. They sit there with their hearts racing. And Jesus lets them know that the breath of heaven the Holy Spirit has now come upon them and will go with them on mission for they have a job to do. Indeed, it is a spiritual law that when we have an experience with God, we are always given a mission with it. This happened to the saints of old, Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah. And now the disciples would join the ranks. I think it's true of even you and me today that when we have a true experience with God freshly, through Christ Jesus, it is not without a mission attached. Someone once told me that you will never experience the wisdom of God more than when you listen to the elderly ladies of the congregation. That seemed right enough to me that as a young boy, I had received great wisdom from my Sunday school teachers and all the elderly ladies in our church. But one day we were having a typical worship service that climaxed at the end to a commissioning service for a few young fellows who were going to go off to school to study for the ministry. After church, we blessed them, we prayed for them, and we, we sent them out of the sanctuary first to the fellowship hall where they'd be first in line for our potluck that was to be done in their honor. 
Now, I was on the music team. I played the drums. So the musicians were usually the last ones out. Right, Herb? Because we are usually playing as people are moving. Now, I was the drummer, so I had more to put away. I was still the last person out. So I walked out the center aisle of the sanctuary down that long several hallways to the fellowship hall. I was all alone until from around the corner came a lady I knew well and loved, Kiyoko Wallace, our senior minister's wife. I knew her my whole life long. Maybe I should say that she knew me my whole life long. She was in her late 70s, and she walked by, and this is a woman who taught me more things about God than most, and she said with a wink and a smile, well, Jared, it's not going to be too much longer that we get ready to have a commissioning celebration for you so you can go off and be a minister. I never wanted to be a minister, and here it is. One of these saints of the church that I've been told for so long had some kind of special knowledge from God is telling me that's what's going to happen. Friends, I'm here to tell you now I believe that it was a divine encounter in that moment. And it came with a mission. What's going on here? The only problem is that Thomas, one of the disciples, well, Thomas wasn't in the room when the other disciples got to witness their risen Lord in the flesh. So when he comes late to the party, he finds himself wondering if he's being pranked, you know, like he's on the outside of some sort of inside joke. Have you ever been on the outside of an inside joke? It's no fun. I had a friend growing up named Michael, and we used to skateboard, and we idolized Tony Hawk. I had to tell the 9 o'clock service that that was the Michael Jordan of skateboarding because they didn't know who that was. Well, I told him, we love Tony, Tony Hawk, and he always used to tell me that his cousin who lived in California was best friends with Tony Hawk, and that he hung out with Tony Hawk, and that he was going to California to spend some time with Tony Hawk, and I believed him. <laughs> you see, when you grow up in Decatur, Illinois, California is where everything wonderful happens. Like when we watch Back to the Future and you saw the scene with the hoverboards, the whisper in the school was that those were coming out first in California, <laughs> and then a couple years later we'd get it in central Illinois. Well, I believed it to be true that you could just, you know, fall over someone and hit a celebrity in California. So certainly my friend's cousin is best friends with Tony Hawk. So I said, Mike, can you get me Tony Hawk's autograph? So they go out there calls me up when he gets back, and I hopped on my skateboard, and I went around the neighborhood to his house, and I ran up, and I go inside, and I was like, did you, did you see Tony? I goes, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's telling me this story. I said, did you get an autograph? And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out a folded up piece of notebook paper, you know, the kind that had the frayed end that you ripped out of a spiral notebook, and right there in the center sheet, without any pomp or circumstance, actually kind of like the handwriting of a fourth grader, I saw <laughs> Tony Hawk. It's a very, very similar-looking handwriting. I've seen it before. <laughs> Michael and I did share homework a lot. I said, is this really Tony Hawk's signature? And he and his brother, his mother, they all were cracking up at me saying, yes, it is. Seems that I wasn't in on something that everyone else was in on. I'm not so certain that we ought to be hard on St. Thomas. He wasn't there. And let's not forget this that telling somebody that someone's now alive after they had been killed the way the Romans kill people, well, that stretches the bounds of credulity a bit, don't you think? Frankly, the truth is when we encounter God, we are encountering that which we cannot truly even imagine, and so we're left asking, what's going on here? 
The emotions associated with such events are so thick. The cognitive experience is confusing because it breaks and transcends all the ways that we've trained ourselves intellectually and all of our experiences as well. This is so much the case that, in fact, faith is often met with its own twin, doubt. It's commonplace for even people of great faith to have earnest, sincere moments, even ecstatic moments of great faith, yet to have its twin come knocking moments later. The twin's name is doubt. When you see or experience that which is hard to explain or understand, doubt will always creep in for it's below the surface of so many hearts. I remember going to Glasgow, Scotland with some friends in college, one of them being Reverend Ryan Stewart, who's a member of our church. He's a deacon and on our board. We were there with some college students and a professor, and we found ourselves in a charismatic church and prayer circle. Now, I will confess to you, and ask for forgiveness later, that I have some suspicion of some of the claims made by people of that tradition. And it's, it's not because I have suspicion of God, it's more that I have suspicion of people. So I'm always suspicious when somebody tells me God told them this or God told me that. I find that often what's told is really something that benefits the person telling me. So, you know, I'm, I'm just always a little suspicious. Even still, I sat in this prayer room, and I got to tell you, something happened that I can't describe or explain well. The leader of that prayer circle went over each and every one of us and spoke to us and about us and for us with such insight into our lives, with such narrow focus into what we were dealing with and what we needed to deal with it, that it was eerie. I won't tell you what was said about me or Ryan or my old professor. I will tell you that it brought tears, though, to all of our eyes. It made me shiver. That moment and experience brought great faith but an hour later when we were at dinner, I tried to explain it away. Doubt crept back in. Even as I stand before you believers now, I still wonder, was it so? Was it as I remember it? We must say this morning that discipleship, that $10 word that means being a follower of Jesus, is such a complex reality that has a totalizing effect over your life that when you have a true and authentic encounter with God, you will be moved regularly to ask, what's going on here? Faith, joy, mission? Do I have a mission? Hope, happiness, doubt? Or maybe, does this make me look foolish? Just then, right at the height of Thomas's own struggle to believe, Jesus shows up in front of him. You know, the way God seems to when you need God the most. He presents his wounds to Thomas, a little bit of proof, I suppose. Peace be with you, he says. To which Thomas can only reply with the first step of faith, my Lord and my God. It's a moment of astonishment and belief. What's going on here? This is the question that you will ask if you follow the path of Christ. Of that I'm certain. But I want you to know this. I think God is prepared for the question. I think God is quite aware of the intellectual and experiential difficulties that following Christ offers each and every one of us. 
I think in each case that you ask what's going on here, each time you even get close to doubt, or maybe when you give yourself over to doubt, or each time you struggle to truly come to grips with what God wants in your life because of that experience, I think we are met with the same phrase, peace be with you. And to add to the story, Jesus adds a bit more commentary. He says, listen, blessings on you for having seen me and believed. But the truth of the matter is most of my disciples throughout history will not see me. And those who don't see me or walk with me or eat with me, but believe anyway, well, they will be even more blessed. They too will ask questions what's going on here. But peace be with you. Friends, it is right and good for you to have an encounter with God. I encourage you to do it. Do so in church. Come and worship with your brothers and sisters and sit under the authority of word and table and be connected. Connect with God while you're out in the woods or floating on some river. Engage with God in the person opposite of you across the table. Remember what Bonhoeffer says, the Christ in another is more powerful than the Christ in you. Experience God in the laughter of a child. Delight in God in beauty, be it art, music, or nature. Experience God in a shared meal. Encounter Christ in the face of someone who's in need. Experience God everywhere. Keep seeking God. But know that when you do, you will be changed, and you will be challenged. And you won't be given something easy to digest. You might just say, what's going on here? I would have you not to despair. I would have you not to be frustrated. I would have you to still say, my Lord and my God, what's going on here? For that question can take you deeper into the heart of God. And I don't know how it will hit you when you walk out the door, or what the next step of your journey will look like. But I will leave you with these words, for they're good and true. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Amen, amen, amen.